Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast dedicated to showcasing the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. The podcast is generously brought to you by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Emma Curran, a graduate student at the University of Cambridge. We'll be talking primarily about her main research interests in the ethics of doing less than best and her thoughts on the practical relevance of philosophy. If after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Emma, you can find her contact details listed on our website www.emmajcurran.co.uk or email her at ejc97 at cam.ac.uk. Emma Curran, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Your main research project asks under what conditions it might be permissible to do less than the very best. What do you mean by less than best? Ooh, that's a, I mean, it's a hard question. It's the question of my entire PhD. I suppose you have to break that down. So first, what would it mean to be do best? And that might tell you what it would be to do less than best. So when I say the best, I'm saying if we have like an axiological ordering of all states of affairs, the, the one that had the most goodness in it would be the best. And then you can go, well, what's good? And generally, I mean, this is something I certainly don't <laughs> try and make any claim to, but generally we think of it as sort of impartial terms and like welfareist and maybe slightly prioritarian. So good states of affairs are ones in which you have people who are doing well off. So I suppose doing less than best would be bringing, having an action or engaging in some course of action which brings about a state of affairs which isn't the best possible state of affairs in terms of goodness that could result from your action. Why would we want to do less than best? Right. So it depends, right? Because some people just want to do best. That's, I think, the whole like effective altruist community. Or the, the idea is, okay, we just happen to be agents who care about doing the best or bringing back the most good. Let's start with that and see what, what we can you know, get to from there. From my perspective, I'm interested in acting in a way that I think, like, firstly, I think I should act in a way that satisfies or discharges all my moral obligations, right? And also, I'm interested in knowing, you know, what sort of life I can lead, sort of fulfilling life I can lead that's compatible with, you know, all my moral obligations. So for me, one, I think you might have obligations to do less than best, in which case I, I certainly need to know that. So for one example might be, I mean, this is a classic example, but imagine you're in a hot air balloon. <laughs> There's two, two other people, two other people. You need to get rid of one person. And let's say you can't get off yourself. You can't sacrifice yourself. Maybe you're the only person who can land it. And on there is like your mother. And there's also, you know, one other stranger. You might think, well, getting rid of either of them technically it's in terms of axiological considerations about equal, right? But you might think you're obliged to save your ma'am. You're certainly, I think, permitted to, but you might think there's something about your relationship with her that means it would be somehow wrong for you not to choose to save her. And you might plausibly think that if it were two strangers versus your your mother, uh, let's say you have to get rid of the two strangers or your mother, your mother might be like particularly rotund or something. <laughs> then you you still might think plausibly you have this obligation to save her due to your relationship with her. So that's one reason why you might care is I just want to make sure that I'm doing what's morally right. And it seems plausible to me that goodness, even though it often tracks what's right, it doesn't always. So the idea then is that in some instances, 
it may actually be morally wrong to do what is morally best. Right, right. So these are called optimistic wrongings. So yeah, there are cases in which what might bring about the best state of affairs just seems wrong. What are other, I mean, most of these examples just come up in the, you know, non-consequentialist literature. Let's have a think. So, you know, oh, torture is like a classic example of this, right? Where we seem to have like some sort of moral prohibition on wanting to torture people. But you can think of scenarios in which torturing is necessary to prevent an awful lot of suffering, right? So you can play with the numbers such that it feels like you're, it, it, if you just think what, about what's best, what would be the best state of affairs, torturing someone to get information. Let's say an innocent person who just happens to have information would bring about the best state of affairs. It seems like we have a moral prohibition on that. So one thought is that Sometimes doing what's best is wrong. Sometimes it's not that it's wrong, it's just not obligatory. And I think that's important to notice because I have a, a, I'm someone who cares about doing what I should do and making sure my, the way I behave is, you know, moral. But if you have a conception of morality in which every action, there's, it's like a very complete system, right? Where like every action is determined, is this permissible? No, I mean, is this um, obligatory or it's impermissible? But it doesn't give you very much room or scope to sort of carve out a life yourself. So it's also interesting to me to think of cases where, yeah, it might be permissible to do what's best, but it's also permissible to do a range of other actions. You mentioned non-consequentialism and I think effective altruism at the beginning. So it seems like you're suggesting there might be sort of different moral theories in this space that give us different answers to whether we should do less than best. Could you just tell us a little bit about your favored moral theory, if you have one? <laughs> Well, I suppose to, to point out, I suppose effective altruism isn't a moral theory, right? It's a it's a social movement that a lot of philosophers who have preferred moral theories are a part of. But there's a within effective altruism community that I think there's a, a wide variety of moral outlooks. You get lots of consequentialists and non-consequentialists and all, all that. I think the thing about modern non-consequentialism is that it's a little it, it's it's difficult to be like this is my preferred theory. A lot of and it's great work in modern contemporary non-consequentialism is it's quite a problem focused looking at particular problems it's not creating you know grand theories of morality now that might be a good thing right like if you're inclined towards like the bernard williams side of things maybe this is all great so i i sort of have a oh that classic wishy-washy non-consequentialist opinion where i think something vaguely contractualist is right i think there's certainly needs to be room for like agent relative prerogatives, special obligations, things like that. So you've mentioned this research in relation to effective altruism, also in terms of long-termism as well. How do we tie in this concept of our having moral reasons to do less than the very best when it comes to altruism? Right. So the, the thing about altruism is it's almost like the, when people ask about like, what's your the application of your work or like why are you interested in altruism normative ethics especially the ethics of helping and harming it's like so the lines are so blurred with the practical application to altruism because it's it's so like clearly connected at least in my mind so to sketch i suppose for people who are listening who might not know effective altruism is a sort of social movement that says first that we should be doing more to help people than we are so this is sort of a singer sort of stance and then secondly and i think this is like its namesake is also in discharging this duty of beneficence to help people more than we already do. There's sort of conditions on how we do that. And that is that we should be effective 
with our resources. That is, we should bring about the most good with our resources. So then it's quite simple. You you look into like, well, using a certain amount of money, which interventions, you know, save the most, you know, dollies or whatever. So long-termism is a sort of even narrower idea, which is came about from the effective altruist movement, but it's also, you know, within the academic philosophical community as well, which is this idea that people who are really interested in doing or bringing about the best or doing the best should really put their attention on the very large, like long-term future. And not just, you know, a hundred years from now, not just like a thousand, but like a hundred thousand years from now even. And it, it, it comes from a sort of observation that, and this is <laughs> where like my quote unquote expertise sort of gets a little dicey because I'm not the person to ask about the science or the maths <laughs> behind this. But um, at least plausibly an expectation, humanity's future is vast. You know, if we go to other, you know, planets and, you know, we could live for a very long time, we could exist for a very long time. And as such, the number of people to come is just massive, just so, so massive. Now, given the sort of view of goodness that I sketched before, which is sort of welfareist and impartial, if you just want to promote goodness, the future is sort of this like massive lake of goodness. You could, because people sort of improving the well-being of people is sort of how you get good states of affairs, right? So the idea is, is because the group of future people is so massive, even if you improve their prospects by a tiny, tiny amount, then in expectation, you will just bring about a ton of good. And this leads to something called like the long-term value thesis, which is that our actions now, the value of them, if you want to figure out the value of your, like current actions, you can almost just not look at the short term mm. because that's totally like washed out in terms of their implications on the long, long term. That's fascinating. So just to bring out a sort of an example and just to see how your work would bear on this. So, you know, the classic example is I see a child drowning in a pond and I think, okay, let me go help them. Or alternatively, I think, well, I could go home and sort of think about ways in which I could help people in the far, far, far future. So in fact, I should just walk past this drowning kid and because I could do a lot more good if because there's astronomical amounts of good that I could do by just ignoring this child and doing things in the future. And that seems kind of weird to me and how a moral theory wouldn't accommodate that. Would you say the sort of view you have in mind does? Right. Yeah. I think that's a, a good example. Yeah. The idea is like, I could, so like the classic version um, response to the singer story is like, well, don't ruin my trousers because I could sell them and donate them to a charity and save like five children's lives. <laughs> then you can, if you're a long-termist, you go, I can't go into the pond because I'm going to sell my suit and leave it in trust for the future. So, you know, that I think seems like clearly wrong, right? And you might think, well, why is it wrong? There's various kinds of explanations you might want to give. One is that maybe you stand in some sort of special relationship with the, the child that you came across. Maybe because you're in a particular, as you're the person who's came across them, you particularly stand to help them in a way that future people have plenty of other people who could possibly help them. So something, maybe there's something like that. I mean, you might want to like cash that out in terms of like, like, you know, a fair distribution of chances to help. Like if you don't help this child, this child will, you know, certainly die. Whilst that can't be said of all the future people. You're not their only chance. What else? You might also think there's like a sort of person affecting view. And this isn't just like non-identity stuff. Like let we, let's say we think we have like a very straightforward conception of how we relate to future people. Like we we give up on all the non-identity stuff. 
you might still think, well, look, the child, if I don't help them, will certainly die. If I do help them, will almost certainly live, let's say. What can I say of all the people I help in the future? Yeah, if I give like, if I sell my suit for a thousand pounds and give it to future things. Yeah, I help potentially, you know, the whole group of future people, quadrillions of people. But how much do I help each one of them? Well, you might think just given the uncertainty with which we can affect far future outcomes, actually, we can only really help them by a tiny, tiny amount. So if you care less about sort of aggregate sums of good and you care more about what individuals can claim of you. So again, this is sort of roughly contractualist sort of view. You might think actually that the child has a much stronger claim for my assistance. When we think about long-termism in the way that you framed it earlier, when we think about it in terms of the expected value calculation, it can seem almost irrefutable. The case seems very, mm-hmm. very strong, but it, it seems that your approach in terms of doing less than best, it seems that this could maybe in some sense undermine this long-term thesis and would give more weight to doing actions that can help people today. Uh, am I understanding your approach in the right way there? Yeah, totally, completely. So the argument that gets us to the result that we are morally ought to to give our resources to the far future, to, to those interventions that most improve the prospects of far future people, sort of comprises of two arguments. And this is, you can see this in like the Graves and McCaskill paper that's on the Global Priority Institute, shout out to the Global Priority Institute, their website, the great institute. And they have this paper called The, the Case for Strong Long-Termism. And there's sort of two arguments. One is the axiological argument, which is, you know, well, in expectation, you can, you know, even if you, because it's so big, the group and all, all this stuff. And then the next is something like, well, non-consequentialist considerations are typically sensitive to stakes. So, you know, the, the example I gave of my mother in the hot air balloon, let's say she's like somehow very rotund and weighs a hundred people, other people's size. So I could get rid of a hundred people of her. Maybe at that point, I need to throw my mother out of the hot air balloon, right? So <laughs> I'm sorry, ma'am, if you're listening to this, I, I'm not making any, <laughs> any claims about you. Right. So you tend, tend to think that these reasons we have to do less than best are sensitive to the stakes at play. So there's two ways to get around this obligation to sort of help the far future. One is to disagree with the axiological argument. And there's really good work on that in like decision theory on like fanaticism. But I'm not in a position to contribute to that debate. And <laughs> what I can contribute is looking for non-consequentialist reasoning that's really robust against growing axiological stakes. And one of them is this sort of anti-aggregationist thinking that's associated with like, you know, contractualism and stuff like that. So the idea is you can sort of cut cut through this claim that just because the future is a real big pool of potential goodness, it doesn't mean we have an obligation. One of the big debates in effective altruism and global priorities research as, as well is this whole cause prioritization debate. And the idea is that long-termism could be, some people think, the most important cause today. Uh, where does this way of thinking lead you in, in terms of cause prioritization? <laughs> oh, and, okay, so this is actually something I'm currently thinking about in that the argument that I, I run, the sort of, I've sketched this sort of argument to you, for you, but an argument I run has some like weird implications for cause prioritization if you take it seriously. The case I consider for the long term is something like AI risk, where you can give money to save one person in the present day's life by funding a medical treatment. Or you can you can give that money to AI governance and 
some person, even though these are very arbitrary numbers, says, well, you're going to reduce the risk of uh, this country of X number of people, yeah, Y, by this much. And in expectation, you you save. Ah, I save like 50 lives or something like that. I should do the long-term thing. So I, I go through, and I won't, <laughs> I won't spell it out now, but I go through a long argument saying, well, this is wrong, actually. And if you care about individuals' claims, you, you shouldn't care about the, the AI stuff. But that AI case looks a lot like practices we engage in now. So, for example, natural disaster risk mitigation looks a lot like that, which is that, you know, the risk of any one person dying of a natural disaster is very low. It's a risk across lots of a big group and it'll either occur across that whole group or it just won't occur at all. Similar to the AI, like either a volcano explodes and a whole population, that whatever populate part of that population that would die if a volcano explodes is hurt and um, well, they don't. And the same can be said of AI risk. The, the problem is then is my argument seems to imply that there's, you know, reason to think that we just shouldn't put our money into, you know, natural disaster risk mitigation, but it seems like we should. So trying to explain the difference between those two is tricky. Obviously, the work that you do can have a sort of practical impact, at least normative ethics and moral philosophy tends to be quite closely connected to what it can do for the world. So I guess my general question is, do you think that philosophy is useful and relevant? And what would that mean for it to be sort of relevant to people's concerns? Right. <laughs> That's like the million dollar question for all philosophers, right? <laughs> um, yeah, clearly, I think my work's relevant. Or I, also, I'd feel really embarrassed bringing up practical problems. So I think the application of philosophy is a difficult one. I actually once watched Alex Vorhoover have an interview at the LSE. He did an interview and someone said, well, what why, why should scientists pay attention to philosophers or anything like that? Because you can see how like scientific expertise is, is useful in that like it's a, a sort of, well, obviously it's useful, but you can see that it's like exclusively useful in that it's like a methodology that's just their own and it's really tested and they, they provide these answers. But it doesn't seem like what philosophers do is it's just something of our own. So and like the, the really simple answer he gave is just, you know, all we can say is that like on a very specific topic, we've just thought about it for a very long time. We're like anyone else, we've just thought about this question for a very long time. So we can just give time <laughs> and sort of theoretical labour to, to things. I think also you have to be careful. I clearly clearly a lot of the 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 concerns that I think about are things that other you know, the general population think about when they're thinking about, you know, the distribution of COVID vaccines or anything like that, you know. It, it, all these concerns that people talk about like fairness and people who are vulnerable they're like philosophically interesting concerns and they're ethical concerns so it's not so much that like philosophy's like a, a whole different thing where like stamping it onto the discourse it's embedded in the discourse people are already doing that i think you have to be careful when you're doing philosophy and you're trying to make it practical that has to sort of obviously one has to be practicable right? So you have to keep it within certain constraints, which sort of is not what we're used to doing within philosophy. You know, we have to, we, we're normally just trying to find like the truth, like the nice consistent thing or whatever you want to call it. I think the other thing is you have to be careful that about, you know, how it interacts with the full public discourse. So I think, you know, we're, we're useful as like as one sort of source to, to, to give the general public to fair conversation but you'd be worried if philosophers were like trying to run the show 
And I don't know. I don't know how to like make this concern more crystal clear, other than I like to to make it more like concrete, other than just to say that I think the thing is, is the more, especially practical philosophy, the more the further down you get, the more you find out that like there's a lot of different principles that are all sort of woven into dialogue, and you know you have like equality concerns and priority concerns and concerns about risk and concerns and 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 what they tell you is that really you should just make more robust systems for public discussion of things you have to make sure that the sort of philosophy you're doing is still democratic like i'm always really scared of like philosophers being like this is what we should do this is the morally right thing to do you know like it's useful to have like a voice of someone who's thought about it a lot but i don't know it it makes me i don't i i always want to 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 sort of caveat what i'm saying because i i think like the the philosophical argument sometimes reads very absolutely so like the end of my paper is like it is morally impermissible given these considerations to do x or whatever so it can sometimes feel like the very final answer which is weird in a discipline that's always back and forth and i think sometimes you know you have to be aware that what philosophy might be need to do is not so much give like an answer for public discussion but rather give like a useful mapping for of like different principles or things that are you know implicit in the debate to help guide and make easier public discourse over it so it's not so much that the philosophers come in saying this is this is what we should do but the philosophers useful because they can use their tools to come in and go right i think this debate's a bit muddy i can clean it up a bit continue as you go i think that's a great thing a philosopher can do i wouldn't want to like step any further a lot of the time I guess with that in mind, what advice would you have for philosophers sort of wanting to venture into the more practical side of philosophy, which is something you seem to be quite familiar with? Right. Yeah. I mean, so I think my advice is, one, if you're thinking, how do I get into this? I got into it by following when my research led me. So I just, the thing I already knew about and cared about in philosophy, I thought, well, what's the practical application of this? Um, you can always go in the other way if there's something practical that you really are passionate about and then you work backwards and find the philosophy that you think would make that clearer so that's just like i don't even know where to start though that's my advice if you've already got like started and you're 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 thinking about writing up and you're thinking about like talking to people what i'd say is think about what audience you have you want to have for this this bit of work i was talking to a colleague in cambridge recently and he, he was doing some work on i think it was from environmental ethics and we were, he was going to talk to some economists and we were joking about how maybe economists didn't care about what Kant had to say about environmental ethics, even though all the insights he was going to bring about environmental ethics came from his like deep study of Kant, framing the, the insights we have from philosophy in a way that is sort of or like translating it for other disciplines, something I think to be really aware of. Emma, thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.